please do turn in a copy of your copy or the Pew Bible there in front of you to our text this morning. Uh, it's found in the New Testament, and it's a letter. It's a letter uh, to the church in Colossae that Paul has written. So Colossians chapter 1 is where we find ourselves. I think it's page uh, 983 or 984 in the Pew Bible. This is a letter, as I mentioned, that uh, Paul writes to Christians in a young church in kind of a no-name town. Paul himself has not been there. Uh, but he's reminding them and refreshing them about some of the realities that they are actually part of something much, much bigger than themselves. Sometimes it's nice to feel small. Uh, if you know what I mean, I, I love to go to the wall at, uh, at, the, at the, uh, the ocean and watch the sunrise in Marshfield sometimes. And it makes me feel small uh, in a good way. And there's other times that it's nice to feel as though I'm a part of something and that we as Christians are a part of something bigger. And uh, I had that, uh, that chance this past week because I was down in uh, Tennessee and our uh, denomination got together for our annual uh, church gathering, which is called the, the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America. It's our highest court and we gather and there's always a sweet, sweet time of worship. And there's something about singing with 3,000 souls uh, with, with, you know, there's a whole full orchestra and an entire choir and voices all around you uh, singing praise to the great king. Uh, it makes you feel uh, as if there's just a foretaste, a glimpse of the glory of the praise that awaits in the new heavens and the new earth. And it was special this year because we did celebrate uh, 50 years. We've already covered in uh, the opening here uh, of how Paul is greeting them, this church. And he's, he's, he has this, this eloquent, beautiful, uh, poetic, thankful prayer as he opens up. And that's what we studied uh, last week. He's so thankful to God for all that he's witnessed in Christ. He's also seen things in them, how God has established them and the great hope that is theirs in their union with Christ. Remember how we said that would be a theme throughout? It's, it becomes more and more apparent if you're looking for that phrase, in him, uh, in Christ, with him, in, in this union with Christ, we have so much. And Paul's just overflowing with enthusiasm and joy and gratitude for what we have in him, in Christ. We have the fruit, we have the forgiveness that's found in the gospel, the good news of Jesus dying and living for us, both those things. In this letter, and if this letter, by the way, was an infomercial, and it's not, but if it, was a, if it was an infomercial, I think at this particular turn in the opening, the hard press of the sales pitch would go something like this. And wait, there's more as seen on TV. The infomercial, you, you, you're loving this, right? But wait, if you call and act now, we're going to throw in not one, but two of these. And then the really amazing uh, pitch is when there's a, a second. Wait, but there's more. We'll throw in an extra set of knives if you call within the next 30 minutes. Act now. Paul's saying that there's, there, is, there is more. There is, more to, there is more good news. And by the way, if you see the real thing, you don't need to hear, wait, there's more. Because when you see the all-sufficiency of the all-sufficient merit that we just sang about concerning the person and work of Jesus, you don't say, but is there more? You say, it's all-sufficient. He is so good. I, I, I lack for nothing. I know that in union with Christ, I have Hope, joy, life, freedom, the list will go on and on and on and we'll unpack that. Not only, not today, but in part. There is excitement. Jesus is the pinnacle. 
It's not a commercial. It's not an infomercial. And why? Because there's nothing for sale. He's already purchased it. His blood has paid it all. So we have nothing to offer or to purchase or to buy. Although, make no mistake, I I am trying to persuade you. I'm just not trying to sell you anything. My desire is that I would persuade you. But I'm not a salesman. I'm merely a a, a warden. I'm just a a, a curator, a a tour guide trying to, to take you through this great treasure that is yours and ours in Christ. I, I can't add any value to it. I'm just highlighting what the creator has done and who he is. And I hope that we can see it. We'll pray to that end in a moment. I'm just trying to showcase and to show all that is ours in Christ because he has offered this glorious gospel message. Please stand if you would again as we show some deference to God's word. I'm going to focus on verses 15 to 23, but I'm going to begin reading with verse 13. He, Paul writes here, Colossians 1 verse 13, he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness. And he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, now he's speaking also continuing of Christ, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled. He's reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. That's God's word. You may be seated. Thanks be to him. Please do pray with me. Father, we thank you. I thank you for uh, your word. I thank you for your people. I thank you for uh, this time. You know, uh, Heavenly Father, you know our, our questions, uh, our, our noise, our, our, our doubts, our struggles. I pray that you'd help us to see your son. That we might see Jesus more clearly. That we might love him more dearly. That we might follow him more nearly. And day by day, we ask that you would do that for Christ's sake. Amen. I was trying to get AI this week to help me with the sermon. Did I just say that out loud? Uh, I was curious. I wanted to know, of, of all the PhD dissertations ever written, some of you have done that, that writing process. Some of you need prayer because you're in that writing process. Uh, of all the people, all the focus, all the topics of PhDs, I wonder how many have been written on the Apostle Paul. I'm sure it's, it's way up there. But I would be curious. I would want to know what it would be like for Paul to 
to write a commentary on later people. If he had a dissertation, if he had a take, if he had something to, to kind of to interpret and to provide for us. I wanted to highlight three historic figures just briefly before I tell you what our outline is that existed in different countries and they had different disciplines, but they all they all overlapped. Uh, their lives all overlapped uh, near the close of the 19th century and then into the turn of the 20th. Here are the three figures. One of them you'll know for sure, no doubt. The first is Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein once said, One cannot help but be in awe when he contemplates the mysteries of eternity, of life, of the marvelous structure of reality. It is enough if one it is enough if one tries merely to comprehend a little of this mystery every day. Never lose, he commends to us, Einstein says, never lose a holy curiosity. That's a good word. But the daily awe that Einstein is speaking of and commending can only be topped not by standing in awe of the creation, but, but really pressing in with God's word open about who created it all. Who is the author? Who is behind all that we see and behold as beautiful and complex and symmetrical and mysterious? So Paul would say, way to go. Way to go, Albert Einstein. But the one by whom all of this was created, he has a name. And his name is the name that is above every name. And at that name, someday, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. True or false? That will happen. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. That's part of what Paul is saying. If this text were to be a means and an avenue, a, a launching point to interpret all the other wisdom and insights in the world, boy, I'm sure he would say, see Jesus with that holy curiosity, Einstein. Second figure is a person named John Venn. Uh, he was in Cambridge, uh, the one, the Cambridge way across the pond, not across the river. Uh, he was in Cambridge. And, uh, and if you go to Cambridge today, even there's an academic hall. I don't know what college it's a part of, but there's, an, there's a stained glass window that has Three circles that overlap. Do you want to know what that is? Thank you. It's a Venn diagram. I love Venn diagrams. I, I think it's this. Venn, John Venn, the person who uh, developed this, was a philosopher and a mathematician. And uh, you see how there's correlation between different sets. And we all appreciate that overlap. And it served as the source of a lot of insightful things and, and a tremendous amount of comedy as well. I love the Venn diagram where there's like a cat in the middle or there's some other great uh, punchline from a dad joke. I'll spare you. Paul would say, oh, great, fine and well. We're not talking about a Venn diagram of just three circles or two. We're talking circle upon circle upon circle upon circle. Then it wouldn't matter how many disciplines you were to add to it and, and areas and spheres and realms. If you were to say all of that at the very center would be none other than the name that is above every name, Jesus. But then, but then better yet, maybe there's even... 
more, even to look beyond that, because it couldn't be just this. He couldn't just be the hub of some uh, great Venn diagram. Jesus is at the pinnacle of that. So we have to be something more, which leads to something all in a sovereign circle under which all of that is encompassed. Which leads to this third figure rounding out the, the, the close of the 19th into the 20th century. It's a Dutchman uh, named Abraham Kuyper. He, he was one of those souls who was very curious, as Albert Einstein commended, no doubt. And he had a mind and he had an, an ambition and he accomplished a, a, a tremendous amount of things, Abraham Kuyper. He was a thoughtful student. He was a writer. He started a newspaper. He was a pastor. He was a theologian. He was a journalist. He was a politician. He even became the Dutch prime minister for four years between 1901 to 1905. He was a husband. And here was his hardest job. Let's all just agree today. He was the father of not one, but eight children. Oh, by the way, did I mention he started an entire university called the Free University of Amsterdam. And at the very start of that, to talk to how they were to be as the disciplines all come together and all the things that you would study and try to learn. This is what he says in that inaugural address. By the way, one historian said Kuiper was a gigantic, larger than life personality who had a keen and and penetrating insights about the world. But he could also frustrate and even alienate those around him. He was out of his mind. In many ways, because he was a disciple of Jesus. And it was at the beginning of that, uh, that university, at the Free University of Amsterdam, that he said in his inaugural address, famous words, some of you have heard them. Kuiper wrote and said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ does not cry, Mine. Let me repeat that. There's not a square inch over all of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That belongs to me. In other words, Kuiper is saying that Christianity is not just about prayer and devotions and and church. But how Jesus claims are over every discipline, whether it's art or or astronomy, whether it's politics or philosophy, all the all the subjects, all the disciplines. Christ Rules over every domain of the created world. He is the central text. He is the central figure. The supremacy of the beauty of the relevancy of Jesus. The preeminent Jesus. God the Son. It's witnessed in so many dimensions. But I would just highlight and suggest that there are four that Paul says here in these few nine verses. And I've grouped him under three headings that he is supreme with our father. He is supreme over creation and the new creation. That's two and three. And then lastly, Jesus is supreme over reconciliation. And I wrote there in the order of service, the verses that you see that correspond with that. And I hope you do see them and I hope you do have your Bible open. So to begin with, right here out of the gates in verse 15, he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Uh, Not not, uh, a lesser image, but an image of the true thing. Hebrews 1 says Jesus is the exact imprint of the divine. But he is 
a creator. He is not a creature. So don't be tripped up, as many are, not to mention any names. Yes, I will, actually. Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, a whole host and variety of other false religions that would say he is a created being. But he is not. He has eternally existed as God the Son. At one point, he did take on human flesh. And, and at that point, he is not the firstborn of all creation, meaning the first to be created. He's the one who created it all. Another way of describing this is when we say that he's the firstborn in the ancient Near Eastern world, this was not a, a, a description of just chronology. This is a description of prominence, a position. Like if you were, to known, if you were known as the firstborn, that means that you had all the inheritance typically. As a son, you would, you would have the, the firstborn's rights and privileges that you would have this exalted position. Now, here he's saying he's the firstborn of, of, overall. He has the, the most prominent position as the God-man. In Paul's original context, this would have sounded absolutely ridiculous. This would have been, for, for Paul to say this, right? Can you just imagine, like, okay, so here we are, we're gathered to worship, and maybe there were people from the city of Colossae who were there and worshiped that day. When Paul's letter came, and it arrived, and Onesimus, and they, they pull out the letter, and they start to read it, and they're like, whoa, 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 time out. Okay, like we've heard we've heard a little bit about this Jesus guy. But you mean to tell me that he who just died, you know, not that long ago, who was walking on the earth, was actually the one who made all of the earth. And that that just doesn't even make sense. I mean, for, for many of them who were Jews, that would have sounded ridiculous because there is only one true God. How could this man who was on earth be that God? And then for the pagans who didn't care about any one God, they were just you know, intrigued by a whole host of inferior, lesser, small g gods. Well, how is Jesus one of those or the supreme out of all of those? It would have sounded scandalous. It would, have not, it would not have made sense. It's like me standing up here saying slavery's not a big deal. And the earth is flat. What? That, that is. You, you lost me. Uh, maybe I already lost you with the AI comment. I don't know. But, but let's re-engage here. This is what he's saying. Paul's saying, you're saying this guy from Nazareth. Yes, it's the one. And then he confirms it in verse 19 when he says that all the fullness of God was, was dwelling with him. That he is so supreme and equal with the Father that at one point Jesus himself says, he who sees me, it's Philip in the Gospel of John, says to Jesus, um, we would like to see the Father. Tell us, can we see the Father? And, and he says to him, what do you mean? If you have seen me, you have seen the Heavenly Father. I and the Father, elsewhere he says in the Gospel of John, are one. Can he give Jesus too much credit? I mean... Um, if you take these nine verses out and they don't make, they, they, they aren't true, I, I guess, I suppose so. But they are. A few weeks ago, we uh, had an opportunity to host uh, a young man in his 20s named Omar. Some of you met him at church. Thank you for welcoming him. He, he's uh, a nominal Muslim. He's from Afghanistan. He's a refugee. And... Uh, and uh, he's had an opportunity to go back to Virginia to be with some other people who also praise God are Christians. And uh, he's kind of on a journey to, to discover what God has for him. And we had some of the most robust conversations over dinner, maybe three nights in a row. 
And at one point, he, he, he wanted to come to worship, and, um, and, and, and he, he didn't want to sing because he, he knew that's not what he believed, but he wanted to learn, and he wanted to have a conversation about the things we had talked about at the opening of Colossians 1. And, and Omar's just question after question after question over dinner. And it was great having a kid like David uh, who would just come out of communicants class in the room to talk about the Trinity (laughs) because Omar was having a really hard time understanding how can Jesus be this God? And I reminded him, well, I did take him to that passage that Philip says, "If if you've seen me, you've seen the Father in John 14. But I also highlighted, and Krista did too, that there are times in the gospel accounts when it's not just us hoisting on Jesus some kind of credit and praise that he never asked for, but it's just a little bit over the top. Jesus himself does this, and Jesus himself testifies in so many facets and ways. You think about this. If you, and, I, and we took Omar to a couple passages in the Gospels where Jesus is doing things like healing people who are sick, forgiving their sins, and then in the, in the midst of that context, there are people who start to go... Pharisees who understand that there is only one God and anyone who claims to be God or to forgive sins like only God can do, which Jesus was saying at that very moment, picked up rocks. Why did they pick up rocks? They picked up rocks because they wanted to stone him for the sin of blasphemy You are claiming to be God. There are other times when you see the apostles, they're doing miraculous things and the people in the towns want to to worship them. And you'll see the likes of Peter who understands. He rips his clothes and says, stop, 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 stop. I'm not God. We're not God. But when Jesus, when others fall down prostrate and worship him, Jesus doesn't say, get up. This is not necessary. He receives it. Paul's all confirming this. He is supreme with God, the Heavenly Father. But Paul is also saying that he is supreme in a couple of other dimensions as well. So look with me to creation here, verses 15 and 17. Let's read the text again. He's the image of the invisible God, firstborn of creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created. I, I like the, the NIV's translation by him and for him. And in him, all things hold together. Well, what, what, what does all things mean? Well, all things means all things. I, I, I mean, all that we the, 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 the way that we breathe and our heart beats and our eyes function, and the, the molecules that, you know, that all, everything is held together. All of it came into existence by the power of his word out of nothing. And to this very day, he sustains all things also by the power of his word. He is the Logos, John 1 says, the word of God made flesh. He is the one who made it all, sustains it all came and dwelt as a God-man amidst it all. And even now he is alive. He is the sustainer. In him all things hold together. So as it relates, as we already said, to creation, the, the cosmos, the created world, he is the firstborn, only to say he is preeminent. Why? Because it was, he was the agency. He was there. And then he is supreme also over a new creation. 
So I didn't, I didn't, I, we, I didn't catch that, Troy. Well, let, let me show you where it is. Because in verse 18, this is what we read. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So what is it saying there? Well, there is this new creation that he has established through his work, through his ministry, through his life, death, resurrection, ascension. And that is the new creation, which is the church, a new community. He is the new Adam. He is uh, offering this great new hope because he's the mediator of a new covenant. God made a covenant with our parents in the garden and at various times and places with others down through the ages. But this new covenant is, uh, is making us, a people, a new creation. I mean, it's Paul who says elsewhere, contemplate this, right? Something to think about. That in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that we, okay, again, here's that union with Christ. In him, we are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. He's given us a new heart, a new identity, a new future, a new home, a new record. His record, his perfect record, as we'll highlight here in a second. And then that's where it's important that as much as he's the firstborn from among all of creation... As it relates to the cosmos, he's also, as Paul says here in verse 18, the firstborn from among the dead as it pertains to the new creation, which is his people, the church. We, 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 we have a living Savior who has conquered the triumph of his empty tomb, his death. The best analogy that I've heard to try to explain this concept of firstborn and not trying to look at it in a literal um, a chronological kind of way is to think about 1969 when the United States sent, you know, astronauts into space to head to the moon. And, and we all have heard uh, the recording of it. Some people actually heard it live and they, they hear this recording when uh, we know Neil Armstrong says one small step for man, but one giant leap for mankind. Um, I wasn't there. I wasn't born yet. Uh, a lot of you, some of you were. We were not there. We, we didn't take any significant step, but we as mankind, as humanity did in that moment. That's the firstborn from among the dead. We have that great hope. He is our great head, our, our, our victor, our, the preeminent savior, the, the mediator of a new covenant. We have this great hope of new life because Jesus is resurrected. And you may say, okay, all's fine and well. Jesus, everything holds together. He made it all. He sustains it all. But my problem isn't the fact that Jesus has all that or is in control or is the creator sustainer. It's precisely my problem that he is. And my life isn't the way I wanted it to turn out. I, I, I want to know how it is that I'm going to be held together when everything in my world seems to fall apart. Why would he allow suffering? Well, he is the creator, but I want to remind you that this is not the way the world was created. It's always a little irritating when people say, well, you know, to err is human. (laughs) No one's perfect. No. It's not. It's not like that. 
We were not made to err, but we have because we wanted to be God. We wanted to call the shots. We wanted to be the sovereign. We wanted to be in control and follow our desires, our interests, our endeavors. And now we live under a curse. This is not the way the world is supposed to be. And yes, we do err. It's not intrinsic to our humanity. It's part of our fallen humanity, our rebellion, our unbelief, our pride, our lack of gratitude, our hunger for control, our desire to to displace God. But he's making a new creation, a people for himself. In order, verse 22, why? To present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. Well, this is already moving into my last realm. There's all these dimensions, right? You know, he's, he's supreme with the Father. He is supreme over all things in creation. He is supreme in the head of the church. No one but Jesus is the head of the church. All of these dimensions and realms. And then this last one, which he clearly wants us to see and get into focus, beginning in like verse 20, when he starts to speak to them as a church, that God in Christ, we see, is supreme over reconciliation. But part of the dilemma that we find ourselves in, that world that's not created the way it's, it is created the way it's supposed to be, but now we live in the curse that we brought on, we have a dilemma. We, we see the necessity here in this text for a redeemer and reconciliation. Because he's saying we were alienated. We, we, we had this problem, verse 21, that we were not loving in mind. We were hostile. Don't, we, we don't, we, sin is deceitful. We like to think that it, we're, we're still better than somebody. You probably are. But it's not the point. Our, our, our sin has broken. It's not that it makes us look better or, or, or worse than someone else. It's that we don't have peace with God. We all tremble at the thought of being judged by God as we very well should. But we have peace through his blood. We sang about that. Paul's highlighted it again right here. So clearly, we, we, we can't miss the hope of the gospel that he's reconciled in his body, in his flesh, by his death, verse 22. Herman Bavink. Sorry, I'm on a kick with some of these uh, 19th century theologians from, from uh, the Netherlands. Herman Boving writes, the essence of Christian religion consists in this, that the creation of the Father was devastated by sin, is restored in the death of the Son of God, and is recreated by the Holy Spirit into a kingdom of God. He is the... The definite article, clear, sincere, obvious, substantial, undeniable, incomparable redeemer, reconciler. What does that mean? It means a lot of things. It means that you can't save yourself and neither can Mary or any other saint or any other works or any other ritual or rite. Christ is the only Redeemer, And if he's anything less than that, then it's an insult 
to his work and his sacrifice. It's a violation of his word. We are not our redeemer. Christ is in Christ alone. These verses speak to the necessity of reconciliation. They speak to the the purpose of reconciliation. As I was just reading that he would present us a particular way that we might grow, that we might not waver. It would be foolish. We say, oh, good, let's remain steadfast. And indeed we should. But it's not we who are flying the plane. It's not like we just say, you know what? Why don't you come up here, God, and finish off? I've done, I've done my part. You finish the last. And then we just walk out the back of the plane or something. He's the one who birthed it. He's the one who sustains us. He's the one who, who fully understands and is in control of all things, including our own sanctification. You being adopted and loved and forgiven and sustained to grow and change and live life broken as we all are and tripping and stumbling up by faith and by our unbelief at times. Don't, don't think that all things hold together doesn't apply, which we, we, we read in him, all things hold together. Verse 17 doesn't apply to your life. And your ongoing life that he who began a good work in you will indeed carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It didn't say you. It said he. He who began that work. The preeminent Redeemer, the one who has reconciled us. He's the one who brought us peace with God. He holds your marriage together. I read this verse every time I sit down with people to do marriage counseling. I'm just going to warn them right out of the gates. This is going to be a lot about Jesus. If you want to know why, because verse 17, this is your marriage, your family, your life, your words, your mind, your hope. Your future, it all holds together. Your peace, who is Jesus. So here's my only point of application. I want to ask you to just take some time. And I don't know what this would look like, but if you meditate on these nine verses, it's got to push you somewhere. Clearly, it's to worship. No doubt, but even asking yourself the question, if all of this is true, and I'm going back now to my Kuiper quote, what small or big portion of my life is not surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus? What, 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 what realm, what area, what, what priority, what, what pocket are we saying, no, not, not, not yours? When Jesus says, no, that's mine, that's mine. Surrender. Follow me. What am I holding back? What am I holding back? Even though he created me, he redeemed me, he sustained me, someday he will come back and judge me. So, to remind you, in every way, in every group, in every discipline, under every era, Jesus is preeminent. He is either God, he is either the creator, or he is not. He is either alive, or he's dead. But in our hearts, may we all be persuaded that he is our living, risen 
victorious and worthy king. Pray with me. Father, we only know some. We, we, we see in a mirror dimly. But someday we shall see you face to face. We long for that day. We thank you, Father, that in Christ we have this glorious victory to whom in Christ we have all these benefits being united to him. What a profound joy and mystery. Father, thank you for the supremacy of Jesus in and over our lives, our hope, our future, our past. Lord, help us. I pray you'd help people today who are doubting, who are struggling to navigate things like sorrow and grief, pain. Lord, you know the struggles in this room. You know the questions. You know people who are struggling with the uncertainty of their health or their family or their workplace. Lord, I pray that you would bring your unique peace to them as only you can. But give us eyes, Lord. Give us the sensitivity. Give us a heart of compassion to meet people in those struggles and grief and questions. Lord, I pray today that you would especially be with fathers. We thank you for fathers and grandfathers, men who have poured time and energy into leading and loving and serving their families. Lord, we thank you especially for fathers who devote themselves to knowing and applying the love of the Heavenly Father. For all fathers, Lord, I pray you give us wisdom and humility. Please grant to us courage in our calling. Pray that you'd bless men who are discouraged or deceived. Frankly, I pray that you'd raise up more men in our country, men in our world that are, are like many of the servant leaders I know in this very room. Fathers to be shepherds of a up and coming generation of children. Lord, I pray that you comfort those who've recently and continue to grieve the loss of their fathers. Father, I do thank you again for uh, our church. I thank you for the broader church. I pray for congregations around the South Shore that preach the gospel that and their leadership and, and their body, that they would be unified. They would love one another and testify of you. I thank you for our broader denomination, the, the PCA, the, the General Assembly, the celebration that we just had. Would you please keep us faithful to the scriptures, true to the Reformed faith, and obedient to the Great Commission? And though we do see in a mirror dimly, we pray that we will see that great day sooner, sooner rather than later when you come back. But in the meantime, would you teach us to love what Jesus loves and hate what he hates?